Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, we are still uh, focusing on the Doug Ford situation and the notwithstanding clause. Uh, yesterday, on uh, in an interview with uh, Global News Radio 640, our sister station in Toronto, uh, the Premier said the decision to cut Toronto's council is very popular and that he's hearing feedback about Ottawa, and they'd kind of like to see it too, or so he says. Uh, to that end, by the way, he's uh, calling the legislature back uh, today and uh, going to reintroduce the bill and, uh, of course, is still talking about using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, Toronto City Council is going to have an emergency meeting, we're told. So it, it seems as if we're kind of heading towards a crisis situation here. Uh, joining us to uh, give some light on this is uh, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, majoring in Canadian and U.S. politics. Barry, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Hello, Bill. Uh, this really seems to be divided along political lines right now, and some are, are characterizing this as a constitutional crisis. Are, are, are we blowing this thing out of proportion? Well, it's already been blown out of uh, <clears throat> out of proportion. Uh, uh, it's it's like trying to. <laughs> use a blowtorch to kill a, to swat a fly. Um, <clears throat> look, in constitutionally, um, it's pretty clear. Um, the province can do whatever it wants with municipalities. If the province tomorrow, I don't think they're going to, but decided to suggest that Hamilton should become part of Toronto, they can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, the municipal level of government is very much subservient to the, the provincial level of government, and that's just the way the British North America Act was set up. So the question becomes not a matter of whether it can be done constitutionally, but whether it should be done. Uh, the um, problem that I, I can't re- remember the name of the judge that made the uh, issue the order uh, yesterday, but the um, Bello Baba. Yeah, um, he, um, he his reservation wasn't over the idea of jurisdiction, but the way it was done, the lack of consultation, the fact that it's done on such short notice, and it's really disturbing the um, the electoral process itself. Um, if this is if, if Doug Ford is bloody-minded enough, and he seems to be, uh, to pursue this, it's going to happen. Um, and indeed, uh, the uh, there was a suggestion that the federal government might want to get involved. That that would be is mindless. It's what the provincial government is doing, and uh, the, the prime minister has enough other things on his plate. He's not going to get involved with this. What we're really talking about at the end of the day is the uh, the jobs of 22 people. That's the difference between the. Um, what would have been the council, uh, the size of the council, and what is going to be with the new council? Ironically, I'm not, yeah, I'm not at all sympathetic to anything that Doug Ford has done. I think this is very revealing about the style of government we're going to be facing the next few years in Ontario. I think it's uh, it's petty, vindictive, and impulsive in terms of what he's done, and and disturbingly reminiscent of what's going on south of the border. That all said, <clears throat> if Doug Ford feels this is such a priority that he's now prepared to in an unprecedented way for Ontario, use the notwithstanding clause, uh, he's going to go ahead and do it. Um, I'm, if, in fact, there's any problems in terms of the implementation, because he's already committed to the idea of the notwithstanding clause, if there's any problems with regard to the implementation, at most it might be to set the date back. I'm not sure, uh, given because we're it's it's still less than a month, it's still a little more than a month away. What is the 22nd, I think, is, mm-hmm. the, uh, sorry. is the tentative date of the, um, of the election. Um, but by the time this all goes into place legally, I think we're going to be within a month. And the question of whether or not people who have already uh, registered to run in the old boundaries, um, whether all that now can be overridden with the new boundaries, whether that can all be done within the space of what will likely be less than four weeks, that I'm not sure about. So if there's a, a glitch, that's the glitch in terms of the timing of it. Um, the stupidity, or at least the mindlessness, uh, that this is just somebody who's evening scores. 
and it's a disturbing sign, I think, for what we're probably in for for the next uh, four years uh, in Ontario. But I don't want to prejudge what the future is going to hold. But this is the style of this uh, of this premier. It seems this is not an issue that he raised at all during the provincial election. Um, and he talked about reforming, streamlining government, but the fact is this is very unilateral. It's only being done in Toronto, and clearly it's being done in my mind and the minds of many because he has it in for people who weren't particularly cooperative with him when he and his brother were involved in municipal politics. So um, I'm, I, I, if you're asking for prediction, at the end of the day, the, um, this new council of 25 is probably, um, uh, probably going to be what the, the way it, it ends up. Um, the fact that he claims it's popular, I'd like to see some evidence of that. I haven't. Uh, I don't think there's a great deal of evidence. I hope he isn't going to start with a pattern of, of making claims that don't exist and cre- suggesting that it's false news when people disagree with him, because that too is what we're seeing south of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the, the style of this premier is, pr- is more disturbing than anything else. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think the issue is all that significant, other than the fact that there are going to be 22 fewer people on Toronto City Council than there would have been otherwise. I'm not sure that's necessarily going to change the outcome of very much of decisions that might be taken by that council. But is that whole concept about reducing the size of council taking a back seat now to a methodology? Because, I mean, because that, that was the, as you mentioned, Barry, I think quite rightly, that was the essence of the judge's ruling. It wasn't that the, the province can't do this. I mean, here in Hamilton, we've seen this happen. I mean, you know, we, we had regional government forced on us in the 70s by a, a provincial government, an amalgamation forced on us 18 years ago by a government. So we, we know that. I mean, we, you know, we didn't even get the T-shirt. We've lived through this. Uh, so we know that happens, but it, I, my understanding from the, I read the the, the, the the decision, and it was you can't do this once the election has started. Go ahead and do it after and say for the next term of council if you want, but not now. But that seems to be getting lost in, in the rhetoric that's going back and forth. Well, I guess it could be appealed yet to a, a higher court, uh, but in fact this all isn't going to happen. My, my hunch is that if there's a delay, there, there could well be a delay. It could be that this will get pushed beyond the October 22nd date when the rest of Ontario will be voting. Um, I have doubts as to whether or not the people who are opposed to this, and I'm not talking about shoulds because I'm not in sympathy with this decision by the uh, Premier at all, but um, my hunch is that he will prevail um, in terms of what's likely to come. Whether Ontario, Toronto is voting on the same day as the rest of the province, that's the only part I'm not sure about. Yeah, I, I mean, from a, a philosophical standpoint, I mean, it's it's always a political winner to say we're going to reduce the number of politicians. People don't like politicians, and they all think this government's too big, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I get that. But uh, but again, you know, once this whole thing is underway, that seems to be the problem. And now you've got uh, the the debate raging now about the notwithstanding clause, and and as you mentioned, using a blowtorch to to kill a fly in a situation like this, uh, it opens up another question, I guess. Now, Barry, if uh, and Ford does do this, and there's no reason to think he's not. Uh, what's to hold anybody else back in this country from doing the exact same thing on on what was considered to be menial things? I mean. Uh, we can get into why the notwithstanding clause was included in this thing in the first place, and there, there's a debate. Uh, even some of the people that were around back in those days are, are not really running to, to, to the to the defense of this this clause right now. Uh, but it was it was one of those things that well, we'll put that in there to try to appease Quebec. I don't think anybody foresaw the, this kind of a use. Well, yeah, one likes to think that people are going to act uh, with some dispassion and, and and some moderation in, in their their actions. Um, the um, the fact is they can do it. It is part of the Constitution, rightly or wrongly. At the time it was intended, I don't want to sort of relive history, it was intended as a way to get the provinces to go along to a deal that they might not otherwise be uh, 
sympathetic to. Yeah. Quebec was the real problem, and indeed, the use of the in the intervening period, as best I remember, I'm being reminded of things. There was a case in the Yukon, another case in Saskatchewan for relatively trivial matters. But in fact, outside of Quebec, it has not been used much at all. Um, and it's, I don't want to suggest that the uh, livelihood of the 22 politicians that might lose their jobs is, is insignificant, but in the greater scheme of things, this isn't a big deal. Um, and uh, that, in fact, uh, this, I think, is an inappropriate use of it, and I think is kind of a reflection of the mood and the whims of the, uh, of the Premier. The fact that he, if he was so concerned about it, in fact, it was something he could have raised during the election campaign and chose not to. Um, so I'm not, um, whether or not the notwithstanding clause should be there or should only be used in certain kind of cases, that's not the way that the Constitution now reads. And uh, Ford can and probably will go ahead with this. Now he's committed to it, so he would look weak in his eyes if he didn't, didn't pursue it. Is it possible to try to throw, to gum up the works a little bit by delaying it through uh, judicial appeals? That could happen. I don't want to suggest it can't happen as sort of the next stage of all of this. It doesn't look like the federal government is going to be a party to that, however. And frankly, at the end of the day, I still think it will probably end up with a 25-person council. So it's a matter of to what extent uh, politicians at different levels want to sort of spin their wheels to, to pursue it. We're uh, getting a, a, a quick lesson here, I guess, in in politics and and uh, from you know jurisdictional politics, etc. Uh, you know, because there is a hammer. Apparently, I found out yesterday that the federal government could do if they so choose. They could simply quash the bill, uh, which would kill the discussion altogether. But I, I I agree with you. I don't think the prime minister is going to get involved in this. It's not the smart move. Um, I'm not sure that what Ford's doing is the smart move either. But. Uh, again, uh, Trudeau has too many other things going on to start getting into petty fights over the size of the Toronto City Council. So the, that, this may just be a, an issue that's going to blow away. I guess the other question I've got, and, and again, we're getting into civics classes here now, Barry, uh, can they move the election date? I, I know that you know October 22nd is election day here in Ontario in every one of the jurisdictions. Can they make an exception for Toronto and say, okay, if it's a month later for you guys? I could imagine something like that happening. Um, if it's felt by the courts, because this probably still is going to go through at least another level of review, uh, the courts suggesting that the date that is um, going to be attached to the, the new bill, I mean, this hasn't even passed, it's presumably going to happen later today, the, the date for registering for election. There already have been people registering to run for the election that was supposed to be held with the 47 uh, council seats. Uh, but now we're talking about a new council with 25 people, and that indeed the date for that may not be able to be deemed to be sufficient by the court, to provide sufficient time for the elections to be run. Is it? I'm not sure that that's gonna, the way it's going to come out. But frankly, that's probably the only change that I see. It may be that, and the, that may well be decided by the courts. Um, I'm not again, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that's. I could imagine that sort of thing happening. It may be that Toronto will vote at a little bit later date. It may be in November. Is this going to serve as a template for uh, other municipalities when it comes to uh, riding uh, or ward boundaries, etc.? Uh, you know, the, the premier mentioned he, he's getting a lot of uh, feedback from Ottawa saying, do it to us too. And, and again, we, that, that's anecdotal information. Uh, we have a mayoral candidate here in Hamilton uh, running in our election, Barry, that's suggesting that he wanted to realign the, uh, the, the municipal boundaries to align with the, the federal and provincial boundaries. Uh, is, is, is it really pragmatic to do this sort of thing? I mean, it can't be a one-size-fits-all, can it? Well, probably not. And in fact, I, I, I even though that's the excuse that the, um, the premier used, uh, he had grudges against a lot of people on Toronto City Council. He doesn't have experience in Hamilton or any other city, so my hunch is it's not going to apply elsewhere. 
And indeed, with regard to Hamilton, we're talking about a relatively limited number of seats. And as I recall, uh, you can correct me, but I don't think the federal boundaries totally over exactly overlap with the i think it goes into some of the suburban areas as well i don't think it totally overlaps mm-hmm. precisely that look that could be accommodated but uh hamilton has only four or five seats uh, even if you sort of had two members per seat i don't think that that necessarily corresponds with what would be done it just so happens although i think it's a bit of a stretch too it just so happens that the 25 seats or so that Toronto now has, I guess, is seen in the eyes of the Premier as a plausible number for the City Council as well. It's happened that we've done it provincially and federally as well. Um, and again, it's because of the size of our province. No other province could do that. In answer to your question, can the um, Premier do, do it? Of course, he can do whatever he wants. I've already suggested he could abolish the limits of the City of, of Hamilton entirely tomorrow if he wanted. So he could certainly do it. I don't think he will. I think this was just sort of a, a, sort of a, 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 getting, a settling of grudges with people on Toronto City Council. He has no particular history to, of, of enmity with Hamilton because he's never been on the council. So I don't think it's going to occur. Well, and for those that are suggesting this is really business and there's no personal element to this, too, I mean, let's not forget the fact that he eliminated two regional chair positions because two of his political enemies were running in those, or were planning on running in those elections. Sure, and he did the same thing with removing one of the local MPs of the Kitchener area because he had supported uh, Christine Elliott. Uh, this is a guy that, uh, that uh, carries grudges and that, in fact, is prepared to even scores. And um, I think this is perhaps just the beginning of what we're going to see over the next four years. With what consequences, though? I, I, you know, he was ranting yesterday uh, in this interview I referred to on our sister station in Toronto, 640, uh, about, you know, getting sued by this and, you know, I'm the, gov- I'm the government here. You know, we got duly elected, yada, yada. D- d- does he not understand that there are consequences? I mean, if you want to cancel the Green Energy Act, uh, that's within his purview as well. Of course, any government can do that, but there are going to be legal consequences, just as there would be for this. And he doesn't seem to want to understand or believe that that's going to happen. I, I don't know who he's consulting. I suspect he's gotten advice that suggested this wasn't the uh, the most astute move. Um, you know, the, the biggest problem, if we uh, again refer to our neighbor south of the border, uh, is not so much the personal style of the president, although that's a problem too. Uh, but the fact he doesn't listen to anyone, he doesn't pay attention to advice from anybody else. I, I'm hopeful that that is not the case with the Premier of, of Ontario, but I'm yet to be convinced. We will see how many fights he wants to pick and how many, how many scores he wants to settle. If this becomes the pattern, I do not think it behooves well for the, um, the people of Ontario, or for that matter, for the Conservative Party in Ontario coming to another election, but that's, that's going to be four years away. But we're seeing in the next couple of months, we're seeing what's happening in the States. And that finally, Doug, uh, the uh, the president uh, Donald Trump is actually going to have to, even though he won't be on the ballot, is going to be facing an electorate making a judgment about his his approach. Doug Ford, I think, should perhaps take some uh, advice from what goes on in the states because I think my hunch is that this is going to be a reversal for the president. And this is something, even though Ford doesn't have to face the public for another four years, and he's basically bulletproof for by-elections, he's got enough of big of majority that even losing a few by-elections won't change anything. But if this is going to be the style of governance we're going to see over the next four years, I'm not sure there's going to be a second term for the Conservatives. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier. Barry, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, many people, of course, are talking about Donald Trump, uh, and especially in light of the fact that Bob Woodward's book uh, called Fear uh, hit the bookshelves yesterday. I started plowing through it last night myself. 
Uh, and there seems to be a, a, a mindset by especially Democrats south of the border that, look, with all this negative press, all the stuff that's going on, all the things that were said in the eulogies of the McCain funeral, that the tide is turning and people are going to turn their backs on Donald Trump. Uh, I don't see that happening, quite frankly. Uh, Lawrence Martin writes a very, very uh, interesting piece that's uh, in the Globe and Mail today. Lawrence, of course, is a public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail uh, down in Washington, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Lawrence, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it today. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Do you get the same sense I do that the the, the Democrats and, and the, some of the, the people that are just fed up with Donald Trump think that the tide has turned because of, the, of books like uh, Woodward's book uh, that came out yesterday and some of these other things, that, that it's actually going to have an influence on people's opinions about Trump? Well, there certainly was a piling on in the last uh, week or two, a whole bunch of uh, uh, events and uh, books and uh, developments uh, which... Uh, you know, f- further the impression for everybody that uh, that Donald Trump is uh, unhinged. Now, now, frankly, Bill, there hasn't been a week since he became his uh, became president that he has not been accused of being yeah. unhinged. So you begin to wonder if there's uh, you know unhinged fatigue among the voters in the sense that uh, you know enough already. Um, okay, we already know that. Uh, what do you guys in the Democratic Party? Uh, what do you have for us? Now, um, you know, but one thing that's happening, I think, is that uh, all, all this talk about, about him being crazy and all the crazy stuff he does, but to merit that talk, it does, um, it does drown out uh, some, of the, uh, some of the good news that's happening in this country, the economy in particular. And now if in this midterm campaign Trump can switch the focus to talk on the economy and he can stay away from his mad tweeting, and all the accusations of being unhinged, then, uh, then uh, he could do uh, he could do uh, okay. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, since the day he walked down the stairs at Trump Tower and announced he was going to run for president or run for the nomination at that particular time, uh, this stuff has been out there. And uh, it what it seems to have done here is simply polarize people. And how many times, Lawrence, during the campaign itself? Did did people say, well, that's that's going to do him in? You know, whether it was the tape, the uh, the grab them by the, you know what, and some of the other stuff that was going on, and everybody thought, well, boy, any other politician that might have sunk their campaign, it doesn't seem to have an impact. People are loyal to this guy, no matter what. Yeah, they really like the idea that you know he's sort of thrashing uh, elite Washington norms, right? Uh, he's like the uh, the guy at the guy at the bar who's half half drunk, uh, you know. <laughs> Taking stripes off everybody <laughs> in a totally undiplomatic way, uh, people do. I mean, his base certainly uh, certainly likes that approach, and they do like America First policies. You know, I'm standing up against all the countries who've been ripping us off for years, which is not a very very um, um, convincing argument, by the way. But uh, they like people like that. You know, the nationalist appeal has always been there uh, for for any country's leader. They like uh, his like his judicial appointments, moving the Supreme Court to the right, which he's which he's doing in the last uh, uh, week or so. With it uh, looks like the uh, Kavanaugh appointment will get through. I mean, that's the most important development. Mm-hmm. Set aside all this stuff uh, about Woodward's book and more proof coming out that uh, that he doesn't know uh, that he that he's running a uh, <laughs> that he's running a, a White House shop that uh, is <laughs> is up in shambles. Set that aside. The most important development of the week is that uh, we're going to have another Supreme Court justice uh, in Kavanaugh after the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, which will tilt the court 
uh, to the right for uh, perhaps a generation to come. And as you know, the Supreme Court in the United States is a, a huge center of power. Why Why is that pushed to the back burner now? I mean, these salacious stories about Trump, whether it's Woodward's book or Omarosa coming out with, I guess she's got another revelation later on this week, she says. Uh, and her, New York Times uh, op-ed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on and on it goes, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the appointment of Kavanaugh, or you know, to go through onto the Supreme Court right now, could have a, an enormous effect on on not just U.S. politics, but you know, there, there's talk about reopening Roe versus Wade and a number of other issues uh, that are happening right now. Yet I'm not getting a whole lot of uh, a mainstream media participation in this. They seem to be gravitating to the Woodward book and 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 some of the other stuff that's going on about uh, the you know whether it's Omarosa or anybody else, and and forgetting about this one well yeah you 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 uh you caught it when you said it's uh salacious stuff and as you know uh, the salacious stuff is what uh, draws more eyeballs and more media attention uh than uh normal stories of uh major uh, importance and uh for progressives i mean uh uh kavanaugh is a, is a is a disaster he opposes women's productive rights he's a gift to the corporate class and small government advocates you know in that he's a He's a all-out sort of deregulationist, uh, and he's a gift to Trump because uh, he has a real permissive view of presidential power, and <laughs> he basically believes the president should be able to get, to get away with anything. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a huge development. Why why aren't the, the media jumping all over that? I mean, you know, when there were testimonies of the Senate committee, or the, the Congressional committee, I'm sorry, uh, about what was going on with the Mueller investigation. I mean, they, they, they actually said, okay, we're going to carry this thing live. I mean, it was on most of the, the networks for a period of time. Uh, the Kavanaugh thing seems to be slipping under the radar right now. Yeah, and you got to wonder, that, you know, the Democratic strategy at this point right now, Lawrence, seems to be, well, we're not him. We're not Donald Trump, so vote for us. And I, I, that's, that's a pretty weak-kneed strategy for a, a party that's really desperate right now to regain power in the House of Representatives. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what I uh, my sort of view is. You know, uh, the only thing that uh, that's out there in terms of uh, policy vision for the Democrats is that the the guy in the White House is an idiot, and and they think they can win on that, uh, and, and by just repeating that message. Now, you know, we've got to bear in mind, of course, that in midterm elections, the 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 president virtually always loses so um um that's just it's it, it becomes sort of a protest vote no obama got hammered and george w bush got hammered and, and clinton got, got hammered. hammered yeah that was, there's yeah. a tradition there so, isn't there so um it still will be uh incredibly difficult for trump uh to uh to pull off uh uh not so much the senate he's got a good chance of maintaining a majority there but the house of representatives where the Democrats only need uh, 23 seats in a 435-seat chamber to uh, to take uh, take a majority. And then, but of course, Trump will be able to turn around and say, "Well, listen, you know, this happens to every president in the midterms, and in fact, I didn't lose as much as the other guy did." So that's that will be their line. But at the same time, of course, when you, when it when, when if the Democrats do get a hold of the House, they can start all kinds of inquiries they can block all his legislation so so it will be a nightmare for him this is a midterm elections are, are fascinating to watch and, and somebody liking them to buy elections and i know it's 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 really an apples and oranges i understand that but the, the voter turnout is usually not very high in some of these areas and uh, the other element that uh, they were talking about from a demographic standpoint 
is it usually is uh, older white people that tend to vote in, in midterm elections. Well, that's got to, I, I think, bode well for the Republicans, wouldn't it? Well, they're, they're his type of voter. You would think now, with all the controversy going on and with uh, this this country divided uh, basically in terms of civil war terms politically, like the middle of the political spectrum is gone now, right? It's all either people are stacked on the Republican side or people stacked on uh, more on the left side. And uh, uh, I don't think people have ever seen it uh, so polarized. And when, it, when you get that sort of uh, animosity uh, driving the dynamic, uh, you're usually going to get a, uh, a bigger voter turnout. So I think uh, with a guy like Trump in the Oval Office, we might see a bigger turnout than in any midterm election before. Is there a soft middle? I mean, we know that, that there are people that are just died in the wool Trump supporters no matter what. Uh, and there's obviously on the other end of the spectrum people that are died in the wool Democratic supporters, although I don't think too many of them voted uh, you know, in the last presidential election. But is, is there a soft middle there of people that say, well, I'm not sure which way I'm going to go, uh, that could be influenced by some of the, the, the stuff that's going on, the anti-Trump sentiment, whether it's the Obama speeches uh, that we talked about uh, late last week or, or the Woodward book or anything else like that? Is it going to have any influence at all on, on some of those people? Well, I think so. I mean, there's the, uh, the independents, the number of independents are, uh, have been, has been shrinking, but there still is, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe a, uh, a small percentage that, uh, that are going to drift uh, one way or the other. Right now, it would appear that, uh, uh, that the, the Democrats, according to polls, are, are capturing uh, more, more of them than, uh, than the other side. But much, de- much will depend, as I, as I was saying, on whether uh, Donald Trump can make the economy the issue. If he can do that, uh, he's not going to do too badly at all because the economy is just doing terrific. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, you can't credit him for, for that uh, in reality, nor can you credit Obama. I mean, uh, there's different cycles that, that affect things beyond a president's control. But, you know, Trump can take some credit because of the, the, his tax cut and because of his deregulation maneuvers and because of the confidence he has brought just as being a, a man of uh, swashbuckling uh, big business background, and the stock market has uh, responded uh, to that, the, the nature of this presidency that way. Great piece in the uh, the Globe today. It's called Constant Cries About Trump's Instability Simply Aren't Enough. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, with us. Lawrence, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. We'll talk again soon. It, it's a, a, an interesting thing to watch, really, the, the, the political process down there. And uh, the impact of, of what books like this can have, for instance, Woodward's book. And, and as we know, of course, uh, the White House, Trump himself personally, but a lot of his advocates, of course, have got, gone on the attack against Woodward. Uh, yet it's, it's rather daunting to try to discredit Bob Woodward. I mean, this is a guy that's written a number of books over the last number of years. He does his homework. It's, it's, it's not just, hey, I heard a guy who told me a guy about somebody who might have been there. Uh, he has taped many of these interviews. Uh, it's, uh, it's a book that may well have an impact on, on uh, the, the political spectrum down there. Joining us to talk about what might be happening is George Breckenridge, uh, of course, political science professor emeritus at uh, McMaster University. George, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, good to see you, Bill. Are you plowing through the, uh, the Bob Woodward book right now? Uh, well, I, actually, I picked it up yesterday, yeah. Uh, so did I. <laughs> I so just, did got, just got started on it. It's a page-turner, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's one of these things, and 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 again, I was I was amazed as I started to read some of the things that were going on uh, with some of the characters.
characters that we now know, of course, the Rance Priebuses and, and Steve Bannons and everything. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I was uh, – it's the same – I felt the same way when I read his book about Plan of Attack about the Bush administration and their, their contrived, uh, you know, methodology to try to support the, the war in Iraq, et cetera, you know, right. the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but at this point, uh, is there anything that, that's going to shock us about Trump? I mean, we've heard – but just stuff about it as bizarre as it could possibly get. Well, the thing about the about Woodward, I mean, is that he's he's a chronicler. I mean, that's basically what he does. He's he's written books about every president since since Nixon, since he made his name with all the presidents' men, and and uh, so he's a he's a chronicler. He goes and you know, talks to everybody. You know, he's not a great writer, but he he just collects all the facts and just lays them out. He doesn't really kind of analyze it very much either. He just lays it out. And, of course, the thing about him is everybody, believe, you know, he, he is very credible. Nobody imagines he's making anything up you know, because of his whole track record. And so, but, and a lot of what he says, a lot of the, de- he's, he's provided a lot of detail and uh, in, in terms of what we've heard before, you know, from the reporting uh, that's been going on over the last year or so. So it's not uh, shocking, but some of the details are pretty startling, I must admit. And uh, so it just really firms up this picture of Trump, which has been building in any case, um, uh, somebody who's completely out of his depth. I mean, who's, who's not only ignorant, but focused on the wrong things all the time. I mean, you know, he's, the business about South Korea, you know, why don't we just bring them all home and we'll save all this money? You know, totally ignoring or totally oblivious of the whole strategic strategic importance of having troops in South Korea or in, or in Europe and things of this kind. All he could think about is we'd save a lot of money. You know, and and no wonder his you know people you know called him a moron and everything else because it's just breathtaking that somebody holding that position could be so. Ignorant and almost willfully ignorant. You know, he doesn't seem to learn anything at all. Well, as because he is, as you mentioned, he doesn't listen to it. But you know, for people that are, are looking for corroboration on some of this stuff, yeah. uh, whether it's this book, and you know, like I say, we're plowing through it right now, and it's it's an interesting read to say the least. Yeah. Or the op-ed thing from the New York Times last week, or some of the other stories that have leaked. Right. Uh, well, or things, <clears throat> excuse me, that we've seen with our own eyes. I mean, some of the yeah. comments Rex Tillerson made about Trump before he left that administration. Indeed. There's a, there's a consistency to this, isn't there, George? I oh, mean, it, it's the same yeah. storyline. It's it's not as if, well, boy, I read that, and it's totally different from what Woodward said. It just seems as if everything seems to fit in here. Oh, exactly. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a, it simply confirms the impression and the bits and pieces of stories that we've, we've had almost from the beginning of the presidency. And in fact, you know, during the campaign as well, but particularly in the, in the presidency. So it just it just sort of sort of puts a cap on the whole story. Now, of course, this is dealing uh, the the timing of this. He was really dealing with the first year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little, slightly out of date because a lot of the people who were his sources are obviously his sources um, have left. You know, that makes it even scarier in some ways. A lot of the people who were, who were, for example, pinching, you know, taking letters off his desk so he wouldn't sign them, these people are gone. And uh, either they walked out or they were pushed out. And so it's even more um, risky in a lot of respects. And he's still fooling around with South Korea. You know, he's still, he's still you know, for example, 
you know, the notion that if we bring all the dependents home, we'll save a lot of money. But if you bring all the dependents home, North Korea will automatically assume they're getting ready to go to war, you know, and they may strike first. So he has no... This is what's dangerous about it, particularly in in the foreign policy, um, security policy. He has no appreciation or sense of the 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 whole kind of network that America has built up. America and their allies have built up since World War II, and which has kept the peace. You know, has prevented World War Three, as somebody said. He doesn't seem to have any appreciation or understanding of the importance of this. You just focused on the wrong things all the time. Money, mostly. George, historically, as, as we go back, a, a, maybe a few administrations, I guess, uh, this is not the first time that we've seen a, a president that maybe not clued into what's going on and, and people within the administration actually uh, calling in the shots. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's widely known. I just mentioned Plan of Attack, one of Woodward's previous books about the Bush administration, George W., and, and it's commonly, I think, acknowledged now that Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld were, were the guys that had the most influence against Bush and, and, you know, had him urging on in this direction to that direction to their own benefit, usually. Yeah. Uh, we knew that uh, in the last uh, part of, of Reagan's administration, of course, he seemed to be showing the signs of dementia. Yeah. Uh, and, and the administrations are over. I mean, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and you mentioned in the Nixon White House. Uh, and on and on it goes. So this is yeah. this is not totally unusual, no, but it just no, seems to be there. Ex- it's no, an extreme case, though, isn't it? You're quite right. It's not un- not all that unusual. I mean, with Nixon, particularly towards the end, Nixon was a was a much brighter man with a really good strategic sense. But he had this huge chip on his shoulder. He saw enemies everywhere, and his staff, people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman, learned very quickly when to ignore what he said, you know, and when to actually do what he wanted, you know. And so they they were so this notion of not always taking the boss all that seriously, uh, as well as often you know the uh, the um, you know the president wants to do something, but it's actually got to be carried out. There's actually got to be a process of carrying it out, and that doesn't always automatically happen. So it's often being portrayed that the president needs people around him not only who will stop him from doing something really stupid, but also who will help him to carry out the policies that he really, you know, he really wants to pursue, they really want to pursue, because it doesn't happen automatically. You don't snap your fingers and something happens. So the the role of of the senior staff in the White House has always been extremely important. And so in that sense, is you know, some of some aspects of it is, of, you know, have not been uh, very different from what happened in other situations. But the notion of, you know, we, we've got to take this, this uh, letter off his desk, otherwise he'll sign it. And, of course, the other thing about that is when it's not on his desk, he forgets all about it, you know. So it's, it's a very, it's, a, it's an extreme example of what you, what you rightly say, is common in terms of how the, the the senior staff around any president actually actually work. George Breckenridge, uh, George, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks for this today. You're welcome, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are still trying to make uh, sense out of what's going on with the uh, the NAFTA negotiations. We know that uh, the uh, two sides met again yesterday. Apparently, they're taking a break today. Christia Freeland has flown back to uh, Canada. Uh, to the Liberal Caucus uh, getaway that they're having right now, to brief the Prime Minister uh, personally, she says. And, uh, well, we don't know exactly what's going on as far as the closest to a deal. There are still rumors that 
that uh, there's maybe only one, maybe two items that are holding off a deal at this stage. Uh, is there a real deadline here? Uh, to try to make some sense of this, we want to attack this from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, and first of all, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Matthew Rooney, who is the uh, Director of Economic Growth for the George W. Bush Presidential Center, and uh, try to help us uh, understand exactly what's happening. Uh, Mr. Rooney, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the program today. Good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for your interest. Well, uh, we all have great interest, obviously, in what's going on. Uh, we, we know the history of NAFTA. Uh, when uh, these negotiations began, seems like 100 years ago now, uh, and President uh, Trump at the time said it just needed to be tweaked, and from that we've gone to another extreme where he's saying that, you know, I could destroy the Canadian economy if I wanted to. Can we separate the political bombast from, from the negotiations and the reality here? I hope we can. I, you know, I do think that um, it's a pretty clear case that that can be made that NAFTA has been beneficial for the United States and for all three parties, and that's a case that we make um, uh, here at the Bush Institute. We've made it publicly repeatedly over the last uh, two or three years. Uh, we have a great uh, interactive tool up on our website that lets you look at how NAFTA has affected the competitiveness and the growth of all three countries, and we see a broadly positive picture. I think that's a fundamental uh, asset that we can all count on. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, a good NAFTA deal, a good, good, strong trading relationship with both Canada and Mexico are in the interest of the United States, and, and I think that interest will prevail. Well, and that, that's why I think there was a, a, a general cons- uh, concern, but at the same time, I think a realization that, of course, this deal needs to be tweaked. I mean, it's old. Uh, a lot of stuff that wasn't in the deal wasn't even in existence back then. I mean, uh, things like uh, telecommunications and so many different things like this. I mean, it was, no matter how successful it was, really uh, in, in need of, a, a, I guess, a, a, an update in, in some way, shape, or form. I guess so. I mean, personally, uh, and I think our analysis was always that you didn't necessarily have to renegotiate NAFTA. There were certainly areas where the three countries could strengthen their their level of cooperation in order to strengthen their competitiveness. And in fact, that was the thinking that underlay the uh, North America working group that we assembled here at the Bush Center just over three years ago, uh, which brought together experts from all three countries uh, to talk through precisely that set of issues. And, And so we've long felt that there needed to be um, you know, an update in the trading relationship among the three countries. I, I think reopening NAFTA and uh, which rep- which represented a fairly fine balance uh, at its in its day uh, was was a little was a little risky. But um, certainly, you know, the three countries have worked, reached the point where we compete. Uh, not so much with one another as uh, as on a team competing in the global economy as a whole, and certainly uh, e-commerce and and some of the new things that have arisen since 1992 had had to be codified perhaps in the relationship among the three countries. And so, if if that's the end result of this negotiation, that'll be a positive thing. One of the issues that keeps coming up time and time again, at least in, in the releases that we see anyway, uh, is is the, the Canadian supply management system. In other words, the, the subsidy system really for the dairy industry here and the quotas and tariffs, of course, that, that can ensue uh, if those quotas are actually uh, superseded. Is it a really big issue? I mean, the reality here is is both governments, I guess probably every government, in some way, shape, or form try to subsidize some industries that they need to help. Is is it really crippling the U.S. dairy industry to, to have a supply management system here in Canada? Uh, if, if that's the case, then it's a brand new development because I think in, in general since NAFTA has been in existence and since the United States and Canada have been trading with each other, which is a 100-year-plus history, um, I think we have both sides have always found 
market impediments on the other side that they that they objected to and that they wanted to have removed. And over the years, we've we've agreed between the two countries to remove some of those. As you say, the United States has our own sensitivities. We protect our dairy industry, uh, but our dairy industry seems to do quite well in Canada. What I think is interesting uh, and potentially a lost opportunity in this whole thing is, my own view is, the Canadian government probably in its heart of hearts uh, wants to get rid of supply management or start to start to uh, draw it down. And so a negotiation like this could be a way to do that if it were handled properly. Under the current circumstances, I'm not sure that that'll be the result. Uh, there may be some additional market opening, I suppose, in Canada to, to mollify the United States and get some other things that Canada needs. Um, but I don't think we're, we're looking here at the beginning of the end of supply management. No, that's the political sensitivity here, isn't it? Because uh, it, the, the reality here on, on this side of the border is, is Canada did modify their, their supply management policy when they signed the European trade deal, uh, and even the, 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 sec, the second Trans-Pacific Partnership deal that Canada uh, was negotiating with, uh, the same sort of thing was, was uh, at play there, too. So it's, it's not as if they're digging their heels in and saying, no, we're not going to budge on this. They already have, technically, on those two other two deals. So you'd think that they could do the same thing with NAFTA. You would think so. Uh, it's one of the frustrating things about um, the way our current administration has handled this whole issue that, of course, we had that deal in TPP. We also had the updating that we talked about earlier uh, in terms of uh, e-commerce and so on. Uh, and, and the administration walked away from that deal at the outset. And so that was, that was I think, an important um, uh, moment in in trade and also between our two countries in the sense that there was a lot on the table in in the TPP deal, the big TPP deal that included the United States. There was a lot on the table, including a number of uh, market access assets that Canada had achieved, not just in the U.S. but in the Trans-Pacific markets um, that TPP brought, and that provided, I think, in the Canadian government at the time, the opportunity to say, look, we need to ramp down supply management in order to accomplish these other objectives, and that's the way a trade negotiation should really work. Um, and so uh, it's 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 always struck us as kind of perplexing that you would walk away from TPP and then turn around and and demand a, a renegotiation of NAFTA because, after all, that is part of what we achieved. In TPP. The, the reality here is that we want to get a deal. I think everybody does. And, and I know that they've negotiated with Mexico and, and they say they've got a deal there. And uh, it seems to be as they at one time they seem to be saying, well, Canada, you can join in this deal if you want, but there's got to be some, some Canadian components. Are you confident that, 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 that we're going to find some resolution here and some common ground that all three countries can, can buy into? I do, I do think so. For one thing, I think it's there's a very, very powerful interest on both the Canadian side and the Mexican side in some form of certainty in trade relations with the United States. So even a deal that represents, um, you know, a bit of a step back, I mean, da down here you hear people talk about, are we talking here about NAFTA 2.0 or NAFTA 0 0.8? And and even if we're talking about NAFTA 0 0.8, I think uh, given the, given the um, importance of the U.S. relationship to both Canada and Mexico, uh, I'm hoping that we'll that we'll get somewhere. I, I hope it's not 0 0.8, um, but 0 0.8 is better than zero. And uh, and so if, if that's what it has to be uh, during a period of time when the United States is in this kind of defensive crouch, uh, and we can come back to um, a more expansive relationship in the future, I hope that'll be the case. Matthew Rooney, Director of Economic Growth for the uh, George W. Bush Presidential uh, Institute. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for the time today. It's great talking with you. Thank you, and I hope, I hope to see everybody in Vancouver at the end of the month at the NASCO Continental Reunion. It's a great opportunity to make these North America cases to the public. Uh, I'll be there uh, speaking, and I know a lot of North Americanists from across Mexico, Canada, and the United States will be there. We look forward to seeing everybody there. Well, it's another example of the strong bond between the two countries, isn't it? 
it is, in fact, is a great organization, and they're having uh, their annual meeting in Vancouver this year. It'll be a great opportunity for folks who care about North America and the North American relationships to stand up and be counted. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Thanks again, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, Matthew Rooney from uh, the Bush Center. Uh, Marvin Ryder has been following this fall, of course, uh, from the DeGroote School of Business here at McGaster University. I want to get him to jump in for a couple of minutes here. Marvin, thanks for uh, coming on today. Appreciate the time. Happy to be here, Bill. Well, I just talked with Matthew Rooney from the the Bush uh, Institute, the Presidential Center down there. What a conciliatory individual. It sounds to me as if there are some level-headed people that are looking at this deal and saying, yeah, we can do this. Yes, not all Republicans are like Donald Trump. uh, That's reassuring, isn't it? It is indeed. So I I think we can get a deal here. Now, again, the whole thing is the word negotiation. Both sides are going to have to give something to get something. The United States is going to have to give, I think, on dispute resolution to get us to give on the supply management, the dairy industry. We've given before. In the case of CETA, we doubled the amount of European Union cheese that was being admitted to Canada. And yes, there was lots of hooting and hollering on this side to say, oh my God, you're going to destroy the cheese industry. But we've survived. We've found a way to move forward. We also compromised on dairy and Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is something that Australia and New Zealand wanted, and we've survived. Uh, in the case of, of the United States, less than 5% of the milk that comes into Canada comes from the United States. If we were to allow twice as much, maybe 10% of the milk in Canada to come from there. Yes, I know there are repercussions from this, but if that's what it takes to get the deal, I, I think we can't just dig in our heels at this point. Are we that close, though? Well, I think I think we are. Christian Freeland returned to the bargaining table yesterday. Now, of course, yesterday being September 11th was a somber day in the United States as they reflected on the terrible tragedy of 17 years ago. But nonetheless, she was there bright and early, uh, meeting with Lighthizer and having these kinds of discussions. And I, you know, I don't want to put pressure on it. I don't want to guess a deadline. Uh, the, the hard deadline seems to be October 1. But conceivably, Bill, later this afternoon, by Friday, they could come out all smiles and shaking hands and say, we've done it. It's been tough negotiating on both sides, but we've done it. Uh, then the question would be, could Mr. Lighthizer sell whatever he's done to Mr. Trump? But I think Mr. Trump wants a deal, just if nothing else, to deflect uh, the other challenges flying around him, whether that be Russia, the Mueller investigation, or other sorts of probes into his things. To get a win at this point, heading into the midterm elections, would be great news for him. Well, if they can sign this deal, as we were talking about with Lawrence Martin just a while ago, about some of the stuff that's going on in Washington with Woodward's book on, and all the other things. Right. Uh, the narrative that Trump wants heading into the to midterm elections is the economy. And, and a NAFTA deal certainly falls right into that. And to say, you know, and I think, by the way, I also think we're going to come up with a new name for it because Donald Trump so hates the word NAFTA. He'll call it something else. We don't really care what he calls it. Uh, I'm going to only call it 2.0. But, yes, you're absolutely right. He needs something to go in and say, thank God you elected me president. Look what I got. And, and by the way, you know, he's been setting us up as the evil empire. We got against that evil Canada that's been taking advantage of us. Thank God you made me president. Well, and let's talk about the supply management thing, because it keeps coming up again. And yep. I, was, I was really interested to hear Mr. Rooney's comments to suggest we don't really think it's a big deal, uh, that it's not having that much of a negative impact on, on the U.S. dairy industry. That's not the word we get out of the White House, of course. Well, but, if, but if they were to follow your advice and actually double 
uh, the amount of, of American product that's allowed in there. That's something he can crow about. Hey, I've doubled it. Boy, have we ever done a great deal for you guys? Twice as much stuff is going to go across the border now. Right. So wh- why you don't hear about supply management? In the United States, they let each farmer produce as much as he or she wants. They don't have a, a quota system. And as a result, and this always happens when you do that, people overproduce. They produce more than they can sell. That leads to cutthroat competition. Now, the good news for consumers, cutthroat competition, lower prices, but it also leads to farmers simply dumping milk onto the field. So they are desperate to get milk into another area. Now, one part of the story that you haven't heard that much about is sort of an industrial classification of milk. Even though we restricted, say, the milk for human consumption, just bottled milk or in bags, etc., um, industrial milk, what's called ultra-filtered industrial milk, uh, was coming into Canada outside of the NAFTA agreement, and there were great volumes of it until 2016. When Canada changed some rules on this, and you can see that the export of American milk dropped dramatically. So that's another part of this that I think Christia Freeland and Robert Lighthizer are talking about. Not simply talking about the volume, but the kind of milk and how it can be used. This ultra-filtered milk is used to make things like yogurt and cheese, um, uh, butter, ice cream, uh, things that are not necessarily straight straight consumable milk. Uh, And that's something else the Americans are interested in. But I, I think we can do this. I really do. Again, Bill, to be frank, I'm not actually sure why we don't have a deal by now. It would seem to me if you and I were horse trading like over the price of a house, you offer a million, I offer 100000 If we're of goodwill, we can find some middle ground. I might have thought they would have had this one resolved, but it may very well be that we're holding out the dairy to get the concession on Chapter 19, which is the dispute resolution. Well, it's recessed right now. As we mentioned, uh, Ms. Freeland has gone over to Saskatchewan to, uh, to talk to the Prime Minister. Uh, could it be to get, uh, you know, I, I guess, direction on, on closing arguments to say, yeah, we can seal this thing up? Yeah, it could very well be. You know, she... Uh, as wonderful as she is, she doesn't have the ultimate authority. She does have to report back to her boss, the Prime Minister, much like Mr. Lighthizer has to report to his boss, Mr. Trump. And remember, Mexico is still here. Whatever we come out with in this, Mexico has to be happy with, especially if it is involving the uh, dispute resolution mechanism. So everyone's got to keep checking with their bosses. But, uh, you know, I really do feel there's all the right momentum here. If people of good character should be able to make this deal happen. By the way, that dispute resolution aspect uh, that we think is still a major stumbling block. Uh, obviously, Mexico signed off on the U.S. idea of just letting U.S. judges do this because it didn't seem to be a factor for them. Does that make it more difficult for Canada to put it back on the table? It, it could very well. Now, why might Mexico have done that? Well, you know, as, as important as dispute resolution is, it's actually been used rather sparingly over the last 23 years. In fact, there's not been one case a year on average. I think the, the total number of cases brought for dispute resolution have been something like 10 or 11 or 12, something on that order. So it's not not like there's a dispute constantly that needs to be resolved, but most of the disputes that did come up over the course of NAFTA didn't involve Mexico. They involved Canada and the United States. I think that's why Mexico said, well, we can live with it either way because, look, no one really complains about us. It's things like our Canadian softwood lumber that three times over the history of NAFTA there were appeals and, and hearings over. It's more important to us, I think, than it is to Mexico. What's the Mexican word for whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Manana. Ah, there you go. That'll do it. Okay. Marvin, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Anytime, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.